So hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 70 of Level Up. 60 minutes, as you know, of live Q&A, where your questions, chats, comments and votes really do drive the show. So please, I can already see quite a lot of you joining us online, both on YouTube and on LinkedIn. So just introduce yourselves, please, in the chat over there. I think Charlotte Miller is uh, online today for us, and she's handling the social uh, interaction in the chat. So let us know your name, please, and whereabouts in the world you're joining from in the chat. We love to hear from you and we'll get everybody involved in the show. Um, also in the chat, of course, you will soon find a link to vote up the questions that you would most like answered. And of course, to add your own. We live stream Mondays at 8 and Fridays at 2pm every week, UK time, to both YouTube and LinkedIn. Now today, we're going to be talking about the winning formula for public-private partnerships, or PPPs, as they are abbreviated to. And they're a global growth vehicle, as we know, for delivering not just large infrastructure projects, but also a whole range of service-led public-private partnerships are now in place and by different governments around the world. So how do you improve your personal chance of success in being involved and your organisations in bidding for and executing excellence? Well, we've got a highly experienced panel today, so let's jump across and meet them. Um, everybody is returning to the Level Up panel today. Um, I'd like to introduce, first of all, Maurice. Maurice Diamond has a background in complex procurement and commercials. He's a leading tutor and coach for the World Bank CP3P qualifications and delights in seeing his clients improve their project procurement and management skills. Welcome, Maurice. Thank you. And uh, whereabouts are you joining us from, Maurice, today? So uh, I'm uh, pleased to tell you that I'm joining from London, which is pretty sunny. You can see the light coming in the background, and I'm looking forward to uh, some challenging questions for us today. Right. Okay. Very good. Um, thank you very much indeed. Lovely to see you again. Richard Foster has a background in law and has worked in the state PPP unit of Victoria in Australia. Um, Foster Infrastructure, which is his business, focuses on providing commercial and risk management advisory services. Welcome back, Richard. Great to see you again. Thank you very much, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here, particularly even though it's a public holiday here in Australia, I'm glad to be inside as the weather isn't quite as nice as it is in London. Ah, okay. All right. Well, it's usually the opposite way around. We're usually a little envious of the weather that that, uh, that you folks are, are enjoying day to day. But welcome back again. Lovely to see you. Andre Kruger, he's the Chief Operating Officer over at PPP Training Online and as an ex Anchor, has great experience of public sector, credit risk, structuring and evaluating PPP transactions. A strong supporter of Level Up, Andre focuses on building confident and capable PPP practitioners. Welcome back, Andre. Great to see you. Hi, Nick. Good morning and good morning to all the listeners. Uh, we are uh, really looking forward to a very informative session today. Um, I am, for the rest of the week, based here in Ghana. Uh, in Accra, uh, temperatures of uh, when I landed here yesterday evening, it was 29 degrees coming from South Africa, where we had, I think when I left, 9, 10 degrees. It was quite a culture shock. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's actually nice, ni ni nice and warm. Yeah, yeah, it's really nice when you go from from the cold 
of uh, the kind of winter time, you know, into a more moderate or temperate climate. So that's really lovely. Um, thank you very much indeed. Welcome back. Sergey um, Sabalis is the CEO, of course, of PPP Expertise Eurasia. They're a leading provider of CP3P training in Central Asia, Eastern Europe, and in the Balkans. Sergey also shares a banking background and has worked on major deals across a wide variety of sectors. So welcome back, Sergey. Really nice to see you. Morning, Nick. Hello. Hello, everyone. Greet. Uh, uh, happy to greet everyone. Okay, thank you very much indeed. And completing our panel today is Amandeep. Amandeep Singh Vert is a leading PPP transaction advisor uh, currently working with the World Bank. Amandeep has experience, of course, of the full life cycle of public-private partnerships from conceptualization all of the way through to evaluation. So it's great to have you on today's show. Of particular interest to him is sustainability in development and knowledge transfer, I think it's fair to say, like all of the panel, is a bit of a personal passion. So welcome back, Amandeep. Lovely to see you. Thank you, Nick. And hello, everyone. And pleased to be back on this panel, mm -hmm. such an engaging uh, panel on discussions on PPP. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, fantastic. And um, of course, the show would not be with, complete without our question master for today, who is Sachitra Jacob. And Sachitra is joining us from Bangalore in India. So welcome, Sachitra. How are you? Hi, everyone. I'm doing well, thank you. Joining in from Bangalore in Okay, excellent. Um, and I can see some folks. We've got people from Cape Town in South Africa. We've got uh, the Thames Valley in the UK. Irene has joined from Uganda. We've got um, folks from Ethiopia. Um, uh, Adele from uh, from London. Uh, we've got people in Tanzania throughout Africa, actually. Africa's really well represented today as a continent. So thank you, everybody, um, for joining us online. So, Chitra, I think we should get right into it. And may we have our first question, please. Question from Locus Reek. Should governments develop a long-term plan, plus or minus 10 years, that includes a project list of projects to be procured on a traditional or PPP basis? Okay, Andre, your hand was up really quickly for this. So why don't you start us off and then we'll hear from Amandeep. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Nick. Uh, thank you, Suhidra. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, very important. So when we talk about the success of, of, of PPP projects, what we are actually saying that it's all about a longer term process. It's, it's, uh, we spoke a little bit about earlier about project management, the planning, etc. So this Success is really born from from proper planning over the over the long term, um, integrated planning uh, between the legal guys, the the technical guys, the finance guys uh, in government. Uh, it, it's actually quite important for them to integrate uh, their needs. The technical people will set the uh, based on population growth, etc. Will set the long term plans, capital planning based on their uh, um, uh, capital management, etc. And the financial guys will have to look into that. So, in short, we need absolutely need these longer term plans to integrate and to uh, to allow governments to simultaneously uh, start uh, developing these these projects that their communities may need in 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 years to come. Thank you, Nick. Thanks very much indeed, uh, Amandeep. Your thoughts, then, Richard. All right. So, so this is you know to be short. Uh, this 
identification of the right project, a suitable project, whether it is PPP on PPP procurement or the traditional procurement. It was one of the first key milestones to get a success on PPP. And government should, should uh, which are not being, most of the government doesn't, but should pay attention to this, right selection of the project. And uh, we call it a mechanism, this is a public investment management. And selection through, should be through that, where you rightly select, okay, there may be a hundred wish list of the projects in different departments, ministries, and now you have to choose the right project to be taken to a right procurement process, which project is suitable. So public investment management, looking at the, your overall resources and the suitability of the project, you select a project, whether to take it through the PPP procurement and or through the public procurement. And more so, this builds a trust in the market for a particular government right. or country. Okay, so it's it. What it spells out? Okay, so this government means business. They have a good pipeline of projects, and these out of the say hundred pipeline projects, they have identified these five priority projects to be taken next one or two years. So this builds a trust in the both investor and the lenders, and it's very important. Thank you. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much. You do some really good points there about confident government and how confident government inspires confidence in the market. Um, Richard and then Sergey, please. Yes, the only thing I would add, I think Andre and Amandeep have covered it very well. The one thing I would add would be that if you do have an independent infrastructure planning agency that effectively provides advice to governments on long-term infrastructure priorities. That's a very powerful tool for overcoming some of the short-term political problems that we see where with changes in government, infrastructure priorities chop and change. If you have an independent advisory body that advises on longer-term priorities and makes those public, then that can really break you out of the short-term political volatility that can occur. It's a really good point, that, isn't it? Because politicians have a certain life cycle. <laughs> Elections come, come around with remarkable frequency, sometimes higher frequency than the politicians might even like for themselves. But there we go. Thank you very much indeed. Great thoughts. Uh, Sergey and then Maurice. Uh Many of the points I had in mind were just covered by previous panelists. Maybe one, one thing only to add is such a plan would be a long-term one, and it would have a list of projects prioritized, most likely. Um, but I think it's essential that every year the, the government revisits um, this list, because priorities may change, and the value for money or any other kind of assessments for an investment decision and procurement decision uh, could be done every time. So you may have put a certain project uh, on your priorities list five years ago. Now it's time to procure it. You may have thought it would be a good PPP, but it should not be biased to either traditional or PPP um, way. You need an assessment the time you intend to uh, carry on with this project, and maybe this assessment will say no. We rather should take it as a traditional procurement, or we, we may need to you know, cancel the project after all. So though there is a plan, it is to be um, approved every time you carry on with a, a new project. 
Hmm, interesting. Uh, so it's it's a balance, really, isn't it, between having that long term vision, setting that strategy, and inspiring confidence to other people's points, and then actually, you know, um, there are there are genuine times when you need to revisit the business case. Uh, Maurice, final thoughts on this. So um, I absolutely agree with all the comments that have been made. Um, so what would I add to it? Well, um, I often talk about the fact that we every country should have an economic plan. And I think what we're talking about here is that economic plan. Richard mentioned the independent organisation that should be helping us to understand what that plan should be. Um, and of course, there will be political inputs at times. And of course, those political inputs will change either by election or party. And uh, just stressing that uh, point about revisiting the plan. And not also, and I think this is a, a last point, not getting in, stuck into saying that this is a PPP project or this is a traditionally procured project. Um, we should have one plan and that plan should be under continual assessment. Thank you. It's really interesting, you know, um, because you, you're, you're so right. Many of these projects, whether they be infrastructure based or whether they be, you know, service led, they have a generational time scale to them. And so therefore, they're going to live beyond the present moment, beyond the present uh, uh, government, beyond the present um, officers, if you like, of the politicians who are taking those decisions on a day-to-day -day basis on on behalf of citizens. And so in that regard, you know, knowing the direction of travel is super important and at the same time being able to make the right decision at the right time on behalf of citizens to say, no, actually, you know, we're going to own this. It won't be a PPP um, project because that makes sense and that's going to deliver the best value. Or alternatively, actually, no, no, on, on this occasion, this vehicle is completely the right way to do it. And these are the reasons why. And I think as, as people mature more in the use of uh, a variety of different funding mechanisms and execution mechanisms, and that becomes clearer for people. And it becomes uh, more self-evident as to which of those projects make more sense. So really interesting start to our um, event today. Thank you so much, Lucas, for a brilliant question. If you're watching online, and I can see many of you are, um, thank you for joining us. If you'd like to put your question directly to the panel, just type it in the chat. And in a moment or two's time, we'll bring it into the show for you and get you an answer straight away. So Chitra, in the meantime, let's take our next question, please. Question from Rachel. With expanding public debt in many countries, PPPs seem like the answer. But when is a PPP structure not advisable? Oh, this could be a fairly lengthy answer, actually. There's a whole variety of reasons as to why you may not wish to, um, you know, go down this kind of route in order to be able to... Um, start off and, and finance and fund and execute. Um, uh, Amandeep, let me come to you first this time, then we'll hear from Maurice next. No, it's a good question. So public debt is always a worry in developing countries and uh, the PPP structure or the PPP. So first of all, we need to understand PPP is not a miracle. It's just another form of procurement of an infrastructure or a services, right? So when a government is already that I talked about in the last question about the public investment management, right? 
So in the public investment management, if if a government is looking at okay, our resources are up to the mark, and we can't take on or cross subsidize the project or uh, subsidize the project, and that is the moment when you see to check which is the right. If it is a PPP, what is the right PPP structure you look at? If a project is a self-sustainable, meaning by through user charges, and there's no requirement of uh, government subsidy or VGF, uh, how it calls, uh, then uh, you can take over, or take a chance to go ahead for that project, still looking at the contingent liabilities that project may bring on. However, uh, any project which needs a government subsidy or government pay PPP in, in a country where debt is already overboard is may not be a right structure to take forward. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Maurice and then Andre. No, thank you. Um, one of the issues that I always have when people are looking at uh, PPP or traditional routes is that they bounce them around as if you're playing ping pong. The fact is that PPP is far more complex than a traditional procurement. Um, there are issues around whether or not uh, the, uh, you know, the economy is right, uh, is the investment market appropriate, and so on. If the uh, environmental factors are not in place, then a PPP is not going to work. For some countries, there is no resource available, in the financial resource, um, and they have to go down a PPP route. But in similar countries, it may be that nobody would even want to bid for those projects. So those upfront initial assessments beyond whether it's the right project is so important. The, that market uh, assessment and intervention, you know, who's going to bid for this? Um, and also, is it going to be affordable? All those key basic points in the business case have to be absolutely spot on. And that means probably that there are a lot of projects that are being uh, presented as PPP that shouldn't be because there are areas which are not uh, 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 appropriate. Um, but can I just say that um, just because a business case might not give you the right answer, it doesn't mean to say you should stop there. And maybe the facts are that you have to look at different ways of structuring your projects in order to make them work if they have to be a PPP. Okay, thank you. Okay. All right. Very interesting. Yeah. And you make a really good point about, you know, reflecting on the outcome of business case development and where it leads you and causing you then to, you know, think differently perhaps about, you know, the way in which you structure uh, the project itself or the program or project. Um, thank you very much indeed, uh, Maurice. Um, Andre and then Sergei. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Nick. So, um, the, the points made obviously are obviously very important. Maybe a practical example, uh, liking the idea of bringing things practical. In, in Uganda, the PPP unit has taken the lead. And, uh, well, let me, let me first just color it in a little bit. So they, 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 they've been looking at uh, PPPs at the national level, and now they are looking at PPPs at the next sphere or a level of government in the municipal local government space. So they've appointed transaction advisors, and when they put out the the, the, the documents, they, they they said, "Listen, please go out uh, to the transaction advisors, go and identify potential projects, um, and with you we will we will sort of decide, at least at a conceptual level, which projects should should, should suit the PPP procurement model." Very interesting. They've they've identified 100, 200 projects 
uh, initially from a list of municipalities. They are down to 20 now. So, so, so size, the size of a project. Uh, is, there, is there any commercial rationale to the project? And I, and I won't go into all, all, all of these. But the whole idea is that in the end, they will identify four because it will be the first time that municipalities in Uganda will be thinking about uh, developing projects on a PPP basis. They will bring it down to four or maybe eight of them and then focus on those and see uh, PPP unit in an in a advisory mode. will then see if they can assist in making those projects, uh, uh, building the bankability, the feasibility. Yeah, thank you. And I think that's a really important part of this. You know, PPPs don't don't always work at a national level, but they may work um, at a more local level, at a state level, or at a more local government level, and they may make a lot more sense and and actually get more buy-in from people when they are more tailored in that way to delivering an outcome for citizens um, which makes more sense on a local level and perhaps less sense overall at a national level so really important point thank you very much indeed andre um Sergei, your thoughts on this um, <clears throat> my thoughts um looking at the question um see the question establishes a link between the public debt and whether to go for PPPs or not, if, if PPPs are seen as, as a way of dealing with public debt or circumventing public debt. So I think it, it, one of the perspectives on this question is, uh, how do you treat PPPs in terms of, uh, is it reflected in the national accounts? Is it, does it give you, um, is it a, a good motivation to go for PPPs just to make sure that the public debt borrowing capacity is not uh, affected uh, and i would say it's an area where a lot of caution uh, is required and um, amandeep mentioned um, contingent liabilities that's something we are involved in now as advisors in one of the central asian countries which really expanded its ppp portfolio and it's happening in the region in some other countries and only now after dozens of, of deals were announced and signed only now the government is trying to assess so how much of public debt, uh, uh, how much of liabilities have we um, accumulated in terms of uh, annual payments, let alone the contingent ones. So it's a, it could be a dangerous situation. And we, we've seen some of the countries with major PPP uh, programs already um, being hit by um, macroeconomic shocks, which you could think of Turkey and these very ambitious, uh, hosp uh, wonderful hospital mm. PPP programs really hit um, in terms of um, direct and contingent liabilities. So one need to be very cautious about that. I, it, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because for, for many years, and I'm not an expert in this at all, but for many years, um, there was a sense of, uh, you know, governments approaching uh, public finance on a cash accounting basis that revenues that were raised within the period were spent within the period and there was very little in the way of uh, you, you know um, uh, creative thinking beyond that and then uh, over many years since the 1930s governments have sought ever more creative ways to to, to move you know some of that liability kind of out of the uh the day-to-day -day cash in cash out and on to various different um, financial instruments so it's it's a really good point again and, and just at the moment as well a very topical one in the sense that interest rates are rising 
generally around the world, there are inflationary pressures and the cost of servicing all of that debt is increasing quite rapidly as well. And affordability will now come back into the equation again in perhaps a different way you know, to the one that we have seen, or at least the era that we've been in, um, in Western Europe for the more uh, recent period, last 10 years or so, where interest rates generally have been quite low. Okay, well, let's move on. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Rachel, for really interesting and insightful question. Everybody thinking this morning. And uh, thank you so much, everybody who's uh, joining us online. Um, Suchitra, let's move on to our next question, please. We have a live question from Thomas. Should a government have a PPP law in place to ensure the project's attraction to bidders? Why don't you start us off? on this one. Okay, I find this a very interesting question because I started my PPP career here in Australia where we don't have a PPP law and yet we're regarded as a PPP success story. When I first started talking to people in other countries about PPPs, often they'd ask me, oh, can you give us a copy of your PPP law? And I'd be scratching my head thinking, what are you talking about? What is a PPP law? Well, what I've learned over time is that, in fact, there is benefit in having a PPP law for exactly the reason that Thomas, in his question, suggests. In many countries, the private sector wants to know that government is committed and serious about PPPs, and the private sector wants to have clarity about the rules of the game. And a PPP law can do that. A PPP law can provide greater certainty to bidders. It can provide real clarity of what the rules are for doing PPPs. And in addition, if we look at countries like Bangladesh, Bangladesh has a similar legal system in many ways to Australia. And so therefore they could have done their PPPs perhaps without a PPP law, but they, effectively put in place a PPP law, one of the key reasons for their PPP law was to set up the right set of institutions for doing PPPs, to set up their central PPP unit. So that's another thing that a PPP, PPP law can do for you. Thank you very much. It comes back to that early remark, wasn't it, from um, the panel about building confidence, you know, confident, confident government leads to confidence in the market and legislation provides a framework for the confidence to hold on to the stormier times let me put it that way uh, very good thank you richard great answer uh amandeep please and then maurice no i think uh, you rightly said this builds a confidence uh, although as richard mentioned uh, like australia india also don't have a ppp law at the national level still it's regarded as one of the successful ppps in the world, but but at the same time, where PPP law brings trust level in the market, especially the developing economies, just to keep it short, it's very important. Okay, thank you very much indeed, Maurice. Um, so I actually am one of these people that, uh, although I'm in the UK and we don't have a PPP law, I agree with Richard. It's extremely helpful. It's extremely helpful in a very complex world where. A lot of uh, private sector organisations are not familiar with the workings of particular countries, and they are therefore looking for a PPP law. 
if they see that there's a PPP law in a particular country, then that will be the start of their journey on whether or not they're going to bid for a particular project. But I would like to just give two warnings. Um, I was working in a, a, a Southeast Asian country a few years ago, and they had a PPP law, wasn't quite named that, and they also had a law around infrastructure development. Now, one of those laws allowed uh, tax breaks and the other one didn't. The consequ consequence was there was complete confusion in that country, and it meant that no PPPs happened at all until it was understood what was going on and the law was repealed. And just one other, which is also, uh, well, this one is actually a funny story. And again, I won't mention the country. I was working in the Middle East uh, in a particular country. They had enacted a PPP law. And in the PPP law, it said that there should be no changes in a PPP contract. It was actually illegal to have changes in a PPP contract. And they wondered why nobody was bidding for any of their projects. So we looked into why this had happened. What did this actually mean? Where did it come from? And it was because the person who had helped to write the law had been working in the UK. And he had been working in the, uh, one of the cabinet office units that used to deal with PPP, uh, Infrastructure UK. And they had a mantra. And their mantra was, you must not have contract change in PPPs. But what they meant was, please keep the changes down to the minimum you can, because any changes in, any, changes in any contract will cost money, and ever more so in a PPP contract. So they just had a mantra that was misunderstood by the individual, and then it got enacted into law. Uh, and of course, then that had to be repealed. And therefore... You just have to remember it can take a little bit longer to deal with changes in the law, so to speak. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. It's um, it's a kind of situation, isn't it, where the uh, legislature um, is is challenged in both directions. <laughs> you kind of you kind of need to think through the unintended consequences sometimes of putting things into uh, into legislation great answers thank you very much indeed panel and a wonderful question thomas thank you so much now the um, there was a, a kind of follow-up question to that which was sort of um, related to it so i'm just going to you know touch on that topic right now verbally so um the you know the ppp law itself does everything have to be in law or can you have governance frameworks if you like which are outside of the legislation but the accepted practice so i'm getting some nods from the panel um richard is that a fair blend to go for ultimately you know some legislation with some accepted practice in terms of a governance framework perhaps that's absolutely correct um one mistake, and, and it goes to uh, some of the discussion we just had, one, one mistake is that some PPP laws go too far in prescribing how PPPs are to be procured, what the contracts are to contain and so on. So you find yourself with a PPP law in some countries says you can only do PPPs with these particular types of contracts and when you run a tender process, you can only run your tender process in this one particular way. And they're not necessarily suitable for all projects. So 
it is better to provide a significant degree of flexibility, particularly in relation to things such as the types of contracts allowed under the law, the types of tender processes that you're allowed to run and so on. Okay, all right. Well, thank you very much indeed. Some great um, questions there from our live audience. So thank you very much indeed uh, to everybody out there. So Chitra, let's move on then, if we can, please, and we'll take our next question. We have another live question from Mohammed. Some developing countries are embracing visions for 2030. Mm -hmm. What is the key role of PPPs for such visions? Quite a broad uh, question, this really, Mohammed. And um, depending on the country that you're in, governments will and leaders will will kind of um, envision their future view, if you like, in different ways and uh, via different um, mechanisms, I suppose. Um, I think certainly from from my perspective, working with colleagues around the world is that it's great to have a vision which is, you know, as we started the show, which has, you know, a horizon of at least 10 years to be able to work to. And um, certainly in my country here in the UK, um, we struggle with large infrastructure projects. We struggle with uh, getting agreement to execute on them. And when we do execute on them, generally, it can take us some time for them to gather pace and, and to deliver you know the value back back to citizens again. I'm just being very open and <laughs> very open and honest. I think when it's done, it's done very well. But you know, it's just my my perception. That's all. Um, panel and your thoughts, please, um, on this. What what are your thoughts around you know um, having PPPs having a key role in delivering a future vision? Who would like to pick that up for us? Andre, go ahead, please. Thank you, thank you, Nick. And I, 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 just an analogy here: it, it, it's the same for sporting teams. Those that may have not been successful probably will reset a new vision, a new strategy. And as you have correctly referred to, the first question also related to this long-term planning. Um, so this is actually very a very good question. We, we need, as a country, to have a vision. Not having a vision makes the long-term planning a bit more tough. Uh, because should we prioritize social projects, should we prioritize uh, commercial type uh, power power projects, that, that's a huge focus all, all across the world. So uh, in, in short, uh, PPPs could really, um, for these longer, in, in the longer term plans, PPPs could play a significant role in uh, helping countries to attain uh, their, their long-term strategies. So PPPs have got a definitive role uh, to play. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Maurice, and then Richard. Um, thank you. So um, we have to remember that with PPPs, uh, what we're really doing here is looking at one of a number of ways of contracting. And uh, part of this will be through that economic plan that we mentioned earlier. And part of it will be through the uh, political aspirations of different parties and so on, and what they're trying to achieve. For example, a larger or a smaller civil service, public service. Um, so how are we going to deliver our services in the future? So that's the step before we say, is it going to be a PPP? Are we gonna have more uh, privately delivered services or more publicly delivered services? And what do the stakeholders, what do the public think about that? Now, all of these things 
will depend on a particular country. But one of the things that's important is that please don't overdefine PPP. Things change over time. I think, Nick, you mentioned this before. Um, PPPs, we've been talking about a particular kind of PPP. But PPPs can work on a more a, a local basis. You can have uh, social enterprising de, de, social enterprises delivering local PPPs. For example, uh, uh, water can be dealt with locally. Then we can have regional style PPPs and then national style PPPs. And by breaking the PPPs down in this way, we can make them uh, more effective in achieving the objectives, particularly in a developing country. And if you want an example of how this works well, look at WaterAid. WaterAid is a, a global charity. Um, they have um, different uh, uh, organizations in different countries. But each country works with this sustainable model of PPPs. And I would hope that uh, that broader approach to public-private partnerships um, is something that could be used in developing countries and indeed would be less costly for them as well. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and and I would I would actually extend it further and go beyond the traditional. You know, we tend to focus on um, you know the traditional need for you know small projects in developing um, countries, but actually, I think that intimacy between the true partnerships of um, if I can introduce yet another sector into this, just to make it more complicated, um, the, the tripartite grouping where you have government universities yeah. and local industry and commerce all coming together is a fantastically enabling, fantastic, fantastically enabling. I'm not sure if that's very good English, but I, I'm hoping you're getting my enthusiasm uh, for this, where you can create the circumstances in which true innovation happens on a local level. And it's a magical thing when you see people working in this way and they start to deliver real tangible benefits um, for citizens. Uh, final thoughts on this, Maurice, before we move on. So, yeah, I just wanted to mention, picking up on what you're saying, uh, development impact bonds, social impact bonds, as they're known in other countries, is a, a really good example of this triangular approach. Um, they are normally very small, relatively short-term projects, but they are difficult to put together. And just like a major PPP requires a lot of expertise and people shouldn't skimp on you know, putting these things in place. Um, but absolutely, this local solution lo using local communities and getting people to um, identify with those solutions might be the way out of some of the problems that some countries have got into, and particularly the UK, where uh, the public and indeed some of the employees don't feel that they're involved in that public-private partnership. For them, there is no partnership. Yeah, understand entirely, understand. So if you're watching us online and you'd like us to explore a little bit more on those sort of uh, smaller projects, the more intimate projects where people come together in order to solve more local problems, then just let us know in the comments and we'll schedule you know, a future episode um, to explore all of that area. It's quite interesting. It'd be great to hear from some folks who are working for um, NGOs who also have a traditional role in delivering these kinds of outcomes. Um, so 
Fascinating. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. And what a great question. So thank you, Mohammed. You've really got us kind of thinking. We've gone off in a little slightly different direction um, to your original question, but we hope very sincerely that um, you know we've been able to give you a thorough answer to it. So excellent. Thank you very much indeed, Sachitra. Let's move on now, please. And we'll take our next question if we can. Question from Tom. Do you have any guidance on how to mitigate the risk of corruption? Hmm. It's a good, good question, Tom. Um, Richard, start us off on this one. In the pay, pay, pay context, corruption is most likely to occur during the tender process or likely to have the greatest impact during the tender process. And there are two particular types of corruption that you might see there. You might see the private sector colluding amongst themselves, for example, all agreeing to increase their prices and then perhaps sharing amongst themselves a bit of excess revenue. Or you might have the form of corruption where government is actually involved and there is someone on government side who is in some corrupt arrangement with a bidder. Both these types of corruption can be addressed to a significant extent by having the right assurance and integrity uh, processes in place as part of your PPP framework. And one of the things that I've seen that is particularly valuable there is independent scrutiny at particular points throughout the PPP process. For example, you can have a pro process where at particular points in a project's life cycle, Independent people are asked to come in and they're given access to the project team, they're given access to documentation, and they take a look at what's going on and they make an assessment, does it appear that everything here is being done in a fair and transparent manner? And if those people have no financial interest in the outcome, in the sense that they're not bidding for the project, they're not part of the government team who um, are involved in making decisions, then they're much more difficult to involve in any sort of corrupt conduct. And indeed, more generally, the more people are involved in something, the more difficult it is for corruption to take root, typically. Corruption thrives where there are small groups of people able to influence outcomes. Now, you might think this idea of getting independent people to come in and look at a project, isn't that going to be costly? Well, it might cost a little bit to pay for someone independent to come in and look at your project. Maybe on a $100 million project, you spend $100,000 having independent people look at your project. That's 0.1% increase in your project cost. But if corruption on average is costing you 10%, on all of your projects across the board, then the return on investment for a little bit of investment in preventing corruption, return on investment is fantastic. So I think a lot of governments could do a lot more in actually investing in these measures to ensure integrity um, and having independent scrutiny is a key way of doing that. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Uh, Sergey, your thoughts, please. Uh, thinking of, of PPPs, we often 
discuss their merits and their issues because these are big pro projects and there is a lot of theory on theorizing big the issues with uh, these multi-billion often projects with huge transformational impacts there are a lot of disadvantages for for a, for a big project it's difficult uh to uh, to manage but i think ppp as a procurement uh, instrument itself is um it has the feature of being visible it's, it's big but it's visible because there are so many parties particularly if it's um, if it's a bid open for international uh competition so we have compared traditionally procured project at least in the geographies that we mainly operate you probably would never hear anything about it you would have a huge road being built and you would never even know whether there was corruption involved or not but when you have a, a open international bidding system there's a level of transparency and of course when you have lenders uh, let's just focus on the one party lenders and it, these could be international financial institutions this could be international um commercial banks so there's a new layer of uh, oversight of the project which really helps with uh, mitigating corruption and of course as um, richard said the process of course is is really important and in ppps uh, by and large there are more stringent disciplines on um, third parties present during public consultations uh, it may be independent or even other agencies from the government people who would not be the procuring authority but let's say the finance ministry the judiciary um, the law minister of justice people may be present um, at the bid award uh, panel so there is layers of uh, instruments uh, to uh, to try to mitigate the risk of corruption in PPPs that may not be at the same level present in uh, the traditionally procured infrastructure project. Yeah, some really insightful and experienced uh, points being brought up by the whole panel. Um, Maurice, uh, your your thoughts on this, maybe share some of your experience. <laughs> So um, I, uh, one of the things I do is oversight on projects, and I'll I come in at different points on a project uh, when it's uh, when I'm being asked. And I have discovered there are two things. There's a kind of thing that Sergey's talking about where you would not necessarily find, you you just don't see uh, any uh, uh, of this corruption. But there's also a certain amount of naivety. I was working in a country that um, Andre has worked in regularly. He may even know these people, so I'm not going to name them. And I went to a meeting. I was I was working for USAID, and I was invited back into a negotiation negotiation meeting where we were to discuss the price of the project. So this is a nice PPP way to work. We have the business case; everything's open, and so on. And the chief executive of the bidding organisation, who at this point had managed to get themselves into the position of being the sole bidder. Um, after I was introduced why I was there, he said, Mr. Diamond, I'm sorry to inform you that this is not the way that we do business in this country. I met with my brother, the uh, permanent secretary last week, and we've already agreed a price. And the amazing thing for me was that he was so upfront about it. Uh, but the nice thing for me was that um, he told me to go back to my hotel. Well, he told me to fly back to the UK. There were no flights for a week. So I stayed in a lovely hotel with a lovely swimming pool. And USAID, their only concern was that I reported this 
particular incident back to them. It was not for me to act on. It was for me to report it back to those sponsors for them to deal with that. And I think that that is also an important point because they are far more experienced in dealing with those matters than the guy on the ground, you know, who's quite vulnerable, actually. Uh, that was all I wanted to add. I think I think it's a good point because you know the integrity that's needed in these situations is considerable, and you know there's 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 no choice in the matter. You know you either have integrity or you don't, and uh, quite quite rightly there should always be um, a uh, um, a difference between uh, discovering, finding out, and reporting on you know, incidents of concern. And indeed, the opposite is also true of things which are going really well, you know, mm. and being able to do that independently of those people then who need to engage in order to mm. be able to, uh, you know, improve a situation that is uh, worsening or indeed, you know, to reach out and to praise uh, and recognise the excellent work that is going on. Because in all of these situations, there are um, invariably multiple you know, kind of layers to these things. So thank you very much for sharing that very real world experience. And I've seen colleagues online today as well, sharing their real world experience and their perception um, as well. So very good. Thank you very much indeed, everybody. Um, Suchitra, time flies. And I think we're coming up to, you know, close to the finish. But I think we can finish one uh, by fitting in one more question uh, if we can. So let's take our last question for today, please. Question from Avery. What is your key piece of advice for ensuring the success of a PPP? Start us off first, please. All right. Uh, so this is uh, important in the sense that, you know, as we discussed, you know, PPP is a complex animal. And any one mistake on the whole process cycle made can make a project failure. So we need to be very careful right from the beginning. As you know, we talked, Maurice talked about the you know PPP framework or regulatory framework need to be perfect, not to be too prescriptive, not to be very a uh, hindrance. Next comes to this: have a good suitable pipeline. Selection of identification and screening of project is much more important. That's be the foundation of success of any PPP project. And next point comes when you prepare a project, the business case need to be very much robustness, looking at the both viability, bankability, content liabilities, public investment management, everything in place, climate. So not just for the sake of making a business case, but a real business case and the structuring. Then as we discussed in the last question, fair and transparent transaction process, no corruption. So we talked about uh, various mechanisms to tackle corruption. Yes, can work, but in some, uh, some cases, you know, when, Everyone is against you, so it's sometimes difficult uh, even to manage with all those uh, mechanisms. But that is a key to success. If you keep it transparent, fair, hold the whole process, it means you are having a queue of investors lined up for your country or the region. So the trust is being built. Even in the one project, you made some mistake in a trans transaction or even the structuring itself is not good. So you mean you're closing doors for the market. So every step is very important in the whole life cycle of PPP to make it success. 
Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Great advice there. Andre, your thoughts, please. And then Richard. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, we have had a great uh, intro to this question, uh, dealing with all the various areas. So, so I can add to that is the, the, the project management teams. Um, we have seen some projects where there is problems later on in the project. And um, the core issue is that the project team initially was not strong enough. They will appoint transaction advisors, and uh, the transaction advisors will really bulldoze through the, uh, through the feasibility study, whereas the project management team that must actually recommend this project to their, to their leaders um, is not strong enough to, to, to actually take the lead. So I cannot overemphasize the fact that we need strong teams. And then it's not only the project management team, it's also the contract management team. So once we have now procured a project and we have appointed a winning bidder, uh, that contract management team need to be up and running uh, very fast. The theory um, of the CP3P program uh, suggests that we appoint a project manager, uh, a contract manager, already before mm. we go to market uh, with, with the RFP processes. So just that focus, absolute focus on the stronger the government teams, project management, contract management, that will go a long way. Um, yeah, thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Richard. Deep has talked about the complexity of the PPP process and the importance of getting all those tasks right. Andre has talked about the need for the right teams and the strength of the team to be able to do that. One thing we do still need to be aware of, though, is that if we have this big team doing all this work to take our PPP forward, there is always a risk that somehow the project starts heading off in a slightly different direction to what was originally intended. What can happen is as the complex issues are discussed and options are presented, a team makes decisions that in isolation seem like the right decision, but slowly the project drifts away from its intended purpose. So something I think is really important is having a really clear set of project objectives and making sure everyone in that team, as they work through all these complex tasks, is always thinking back to those project objectives and saying, is what I'm doing, advancing those project objectives? Are the decisions I'm making consistent with that set of project objectives? Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Sergey and then Maurice. Uh, further to what other panelists said, um, I would just focus on one thing. Uh, I would advise not to lose sight of the partnership nature of, of, of PPPs. It's not just uh, an outsource contract, short-term construction uh, of an asset. It's uh, it's a lifelong journey uh, for the project, for the public and private party. And though, let's say, a, a mathematical approach called calculating value for money may look like a zero-sum game, you just shift risk, and parties may be really excited about, you know, make the, the opposite party take this risk, make it more financially uh, viable for me. In this respect, it's a, uh, it's an adversarial relationship. But actually, a good PPP should have the interests of both 
public and private party aligned because they both should be interested in the success of the project. And after all, what good is the value for money calculation if a project collapses and um, an unfinished or problematic project anyhow lands in the laps of the public sector and they have to pay out compensations and uh, so on. So particularly now with the pandemic risks and everything, I think flexibility, talking more, making sure both sides are real, in real partnership relationship and they care about the ultimate uh, sustainability and success of the project. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, panel. Some fantastic questions that we've had today and some really, really helpful I think, meaningful and empathetic answers. So thank you very much for bringing, you know, that empathy to the way in which we're engaging with each other today. So we're going to move to closing remarks and uh, just hear from the panel. So uh, Richard, if you could start us off, please, and then we'll go to Andre. We've had a really interesting set of questions today. And I think a common theme that runs through those questions and the discussion we've had is the importance of what we call infrastructure governance. We haven't really used the term in the discussion, but ultimately a lot of the success of PPPs and, and getting winning outcomes from PPPs comes down to govern, governance in terms of having the right, correctly defined roles and responsibilities, accountabilities, the right decision-making processes, and also the right assurance processes to ensure that we are in fact all heading in that right direction and driving for a successful outcome. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Andre and then Amandeep. Yeah, th thank you, Nick. So, so the, the, the question was, uh, or, or the theme of today's discussion was, was very relevant. Then again, I wanted to focus on the notion that we actually do have a significant number of successful projects worldwide. And what just amazes me is the width of the business that we are in. I, I mean, if I can use that terminology, um, it's from bridge PPPs to the more familiar PPPs to satellite. I think in, uh, uh, in some countries, we've got rural satellite PPPs to, to be able to, for, for people to access the internet. So just this, this width of, of, of use and, and, and in, in in social projects. It is just amazing. So I think uh, so what one of you, uh, one of our colleagues, also mentioned the fact earlier today that the PPP is not uh, the ultimate solution to every problem. It's definitely not. It's it's about selected projects that that may fit the model very very well. And then again, uh, just to emphasize and stop that, <laughs> is that the width is really it, it's really great. Uh, we really see Thank from you. the fence to where everything. So it's, it's really a great, great experience. And, and then, again, we can use those for case studies in, in, in the training that all of us do or work that we do. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Andre. I'm Deep, and then Maurice. Interesting discussion. You know, so, so the basic point is so use PPP sensibly uh, to being have a success or a winner winning uh, you know, model. So don't just do the PPP for whatever the projects do it sensibly throughout the process and for that for the advice to a smaller piece of advice to the governments to get the staff or the officials have a good capacity building and starting point is through the cp3p course so that the 
basic understanding of how PP, what is PP the animal is and how it should work in a right fashion, they should understand. Once they understand, they will, uh, they will be, it will allow them to even to manage, for example, transaction advisors. Otherwise, what is happening in most of developing countries? Their transaction advisors come, they build whatever the business case, submit it, nice, beautiful reports. Nobody reads through because they don't have that frequency. So that's very important capacity building. It's a really, really good point that you make there. Thank you so much, Maurice, and then Sergey. Um, so I'd like to remind everybody that we've been talking about the success of a PPP project, but one element of that is making sure you plan for the exit at the end of the contract. And we, why am I saying that? Because it doesn't matter how early on you are in your PPP process, you are going to sign a contract that's going to have all the terms and conditions about what's going to happen on exiting. 25 or 30 years time so it's about trying to get it right and in the uk if i dare say this um we're coming now to the end of a number of uh, pfi projects and there are a number of documents that have been <coughs> produced by the national audit office and the uh, accounts committees and so on and i can i just recommend one and that will then take you to the rest it's called uh, managing the expiry of pfi contracts uh, it's produced by the uh, public accounts accounts committee in March 2021, and uh, that gives you everything you need to know. Thank you very much indeed. We'll post a link of to that um, in the chat. Uh, Sergey and then Sachitra. I just uh, echo uh, what uh, Amandeep was saying about the um, importance of capacity building. These days, as, the, during the, as we face the aftermath of the pandemic, the Many nations are rethinking their approach to PPPs. Many nations that they already established good uh, frameworks and uh, built up their capacity, they are re-educating themselves. I just wanted to note, there was a publication in the Financial Times recently about the number of people going for the CFA, uh, Chartered Financial Analyst. The number of CFA exam takers is really going down dramatically which is not the case for CP3P. Uh, I note that there is, Nick, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see there is any drop down in um, people signing up, um, sending their staff to learn about PPPs. I think it's mainly because uh, nowadays it's important to build up those skills, this understanding of uh, how PPPs would be done well. Yeah, I completely agree. It, it's, in fact, it's the opposite. It's accelerating, which is really, really good to see. We have uh, tens of thousands now um, of people around the world uh, accessing those qualifications and progressing um, towards the ultimate accolade when you've achieved uh, the award of all three elements of it. So thank you very much indeed, Sergey. Uh, Sachitra, closing remarks for today? It's been a great show. We can thank you to our panellists and the live audience for a lot many questions which we will which are still pending we'll come back and revisit the show once again. all right okay thank you very much indeed now on our website everybody um and you can search for answers to almost a thousand questions now which is a fantastically comprehensive free resource uh connecting you with all of the people that you've seen on our panel today and more than 140 experts from around the world don't forget that you can listen to the audio versions of all the shows on your preferred podcast platform. Just search for APMG Level Up.
this coming Friday on the 17th, we've got a German language show um, all about Service Management 5.0, which is hosted by Stefan Brendel, and that's at 2 p.m. UK or 3 p.m. European time. So if you have German-speaking colleagues, please do let them know to tune in on LinkedIn or on YouTube. Monday the 20th then, we're going to be looking at the project management office and the careers available to people. So how to become a project management office specialist or a PMO specialist. And then um, on the Friday the 24th, we're going to be looking at a similar approach to how to become a data protection officer. Subscribe to the show and we'll send you a personal summary of what's coming up and of course how you can join us here on the panel and level up your career with APMG. So thanks very much, everybody. We'll see you next time.